One, two, three, four. Here we go. This is episode six, six of the Rough Draft podcast. Um, this is Steph and Chantel, and today we have writer and resident at York College, uh, Nick Flynn. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Rough Draft. <laughs> Steph and Chantel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How you doing In this, today? I'm, I'm good. This little office is like gold fish. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> A little statue. Somebody like it's somebody won fishing contests or something. It's, it's for orientation, I believe. But I don't. I don't understand it. We saw them in here a few weeks yeah. ago. Our we mascot kinda... isn't even a fish. No, oh, it's yeah. not. <laughs> it's, it's very strange. If you if we weren't on the radio, the listening people could actually see this goldfish. It looks like a bass, some sort of a, a big mouth actually, bass or something. Uh, yeah. For the second episode this season, the picture online is actually of us holding the fish. I don't know if it's still up. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, so if you want to just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about myself. Yeah. I mean, just in general? like Yeah, whatever you uh, want. How did you get started in writing? What do you love to write? I mean, if there's uh, anything. Okay, well, lucky. you know, I, uh, I've been writing. I, I've been writing for uh, my whole life. I, I, think, I think we all write. We all write, like, at a, at a certain point. Uh, you know the the we I have a nine year old daughter and I've sort of been seeing the progression of her like like absorbing this like massive abstraction you know we live in this world of abstractions like money is an abstraction you know mm -hmm. we sort of have this agreement and language is an abstraction and uh, but e even things like I was just reading this thing yesterday that even uh, uh, that the like the the ball like a, 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 a little rubber ball that my daughter plays with is an abstraction because basically is it, it's a, a series of things that it does it's only made up of what it does mm. you know it bounces it, it's made of rubber it's uh, the dog bites it uh, there's all these things and then you only get to the word ball after like a few years and that's like the same with language like you sort of get these things you sort of forget like that it's, it's a cluster of associations mm. that at least that and you know being a writer that you're like for me it's, tr it's, it's to try to break out of that to break out of like just these assumptions around language and around these these things we we don't think so you have to sort of re-enter the language and recognize it as a as an abstraction, um, and that we all agree on part. We agree this is, this is these little squiggles on a page when we when we pronounce them in a certain way. We've agreed to pronounce them represent something in the world. It's a really weird. It's mm -hmm. a really weird world. So and then now and I'm a poet who somehow takes those squiggles on a page that represent sounds mm -hmm. and make try to make construct some sort of a meaning out of it that will somehow move you. It's a really weird world. I mean, it's very <laughs> it really strange. Is. Like if you think about it even for a minute, it's like it makes no sense at all. It's like when you say a word too many times and it just sounds like sound at that yeah. point and then it's that weird realization of yeah. what am I even saying? Like it's like when I say somebody's name, it's what sound do I make to get your attention kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. It Dog, dogs rep can recognize like a hundred different words or something. Yeah. A lot of, you know, their own name, they look up and, you know, we're, it's we're, crazy, really. we're a little better than them. So, yeah. A little better. Yeah. <laughs> so we just kind of wanted to take some time while you were here. Thank you for coming to York College, by the way. This is such a huge honor to have you here. No, it's um, great. It's great to be. I've had, had a great time. So. Well, we're glad to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> um, we just want to kind of ask you a few questions about your writing process, if that's okay. Uh, Chantel's going to start. All right. Here we go. 
Um, so, like we said before the actual interview, um, another bull- bullshit night in in the Suck City. No, I'm, no, just in in Suck City, in not Suck the City. Suck City. Oh dear. Yeah, Where'd in the Suck City. That's that, that's a whole nother book. That's the sequel. In the, <laughs> in the Suck City. Yeah, <laughs> the bullshit night in the Suck City. <laughs> You can say bullshit. Are you gonna edit that out or no? We can. No, that. we can. It's fine. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'll with, put like I'll put a dog barking. No, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so with that, and no, it's one of your, one of your memoir pieces, correct? Um, so uh, me and Steph actually are really um, in, like admire of creative nonfiction and such. Um, I just want to say like for your published works of creative nonfiction and poetry. Um, do you have a specific reasoning for why you chose those two? Um, do you have like a comfort in retelling? Like your life story? Uh, you, why I write in those forms, yeah. and and specifically like the memoir, nonfiction form. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because the poetry isn't always, uh, yeah. The poetry doesn't have the same thing about retelling, about going back into the reality of the situation. It's more of an imaginative. Uh, mm-hmm. There's no contract with the reader that what you're reading is actually reality. You know, whereas with sure. nonfiction, there is that implied contract, right? And with mm-hmm. memoir, that these these are as the best of my memory things that happened. Or the things I'm interested in, um, you know, because a lot, of, a lot of lyric essays and a lot of things I write, um, they're not just from my life. They're sort of from my me being, you know, a sentient being at this time and place. And so, things I hear in the radio, news reports. I mean, I've, I've, you know, incorporated war, you know, the war in Iraq into my my, my writing. I've incorporated uh, uh, making film. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that end up in it that aren't just it's just about me. So, cause I think if it was just about me. It would be kind of limited. Um, but, uh, and I wouldn't say you said like, you said like, do, do I do it? Cause it's, I'm comfortable with doing that. I think you said, yeah, no, I, I do it cause I'm un- uncomfortable with doing it. Uh, I'm much more uncomfortable. It's, it seems like, uh, in some way, um, my level of discomfort is a cue to me that like, I, I'm in a place that I need to be as, a, as an artist, like that I'm not really, this isn't a story that I'm, I'm really comfortable with telling or that I, I, I'm sure about, uh, but it, it's something that uh, is just beyond my understanding. And, then, and I like to use it as a process of, uh, of discovery and, and figuring out what I can know about that. But you know, the thing is with our brains, our consciousness, we, only, we, we can only know what we can know. Like you can't know beyond that. You can't even know what you don't know, because it's like th- th- it's just sort of a tautology. Like it's you know if you, you if you don't know it, if you if you can't comprehend it, there's no way for you to comprehend what you can't comprehend. So, but we try to push a little bit into and, and those emotional cues about like being uncomfortable, feeling a little bit ashamed of something, or feeling like oh this is wrong what I'm doing. Those are like little cues for me that, that, that just beyond that threshold is something I haven't explored yet. So that's that's why I do it. Really. Okay. That's, that's the short answer. <laughs> And so kind of like trailing along the, um, with publication of your book, it sparked uh, the film Being Flynn with uh, Paul Dano and Robert De Niro, which is awesome. I love Robert De Niro. Okay, no one, okay, I like Paul Dano. Anybody? Anybody. <laughs> I, oh, I love Paul Dano, yeah. He was, he was, he was fantastic. He was, he was a much better me than I am, really. Yeah, I wish, I wish I, I could just have him play me all the time. <laughs> Um, so with the film, it then kind of sparked you to create the memoir piece, the reenactments, correct? Um, yeah, with the film, yeah, the, the reenactments is based on me being on set and seeing mm-hmm. my family, you know, be acted out and, and you know, 
really you know, difficult situations in my favor be acted out by like these great actors and sort of being there and sort of the process of that of like you're sort of this layering of memory of you know the thing happens then I you, know, you rem I remember the thing that happens and I write a book about the thing that happens and then a script gets made about that stuff and then actors read the script and then they interpret it it was these layers of like uh, of representation that were uh, very strange and, and, and sort of part of reality also and, mm. and some strange especially in our world now where you know now we're talking about this is another level of reality right now with all of us in this room so mm -hmm. yeah I don't know so, when it will stop really <laughs> I have no idea when, when this is going to stop it's yeah. <laughs> um, I mean you kind of already explained it like how does it feel well how the first moment when you watched the film what did it mean did it mean something to you was it the, your kind of moment saying like wow like not that I, not that i made it but this is my life on the screen like was it weird for you how yeah. was that experience yeah for you? i think that's why i had to write the book because and, and that's the thing that i've, I've resisted uh answering like not that particular <laughs> question but the question like the the moment when something happens like, mm -hmm. I, I don't there's almost never like a moment i guess there's a moment if there's like a car crash and like someone dies in that moment or your life has changed. Like there are certain moments that happen, but yeah. a moment like a film, uh, which is based on a book, which is based on stuff you remember, like this, this is, it's a chain of moments. It's mm -hmm. not like one thing. Uh, and so to, to reduce it to like, you know, how did I feel when I saw it? I mean, do you mean when I saw it, when I first read the script about it, or when I sat with Julianne Moore when she did a table read about it, or when I actually saw Julianne Moore, you know, stand up and, and answer to the name of my mother or when I went to the editing room and saw the you know mm -hmm. each edit like for months like and, and chose which take of those 20 takes mm -hmm. she did or when I the first time I sat I mean I can't even remember the first time I sat and saw the movie because I saw the movie like hundreds of times mm -hmm. you know hundred, hundreds and hundreds of times like and each time I saw moments that were pieced mm -hmm. together into a movie so there wasn't a time where I went and got you know a thing of popcorn it's not like going to see a movie for the first time that, that you've never seen before it's a, a very different experience and so the moments would be would have to incorporate all that complexity, mm -hmm. the answer. So that's why I tried to write a book about it. So okay. it felt bigger than. It makes like, sense though, because like yeah. you said, it's kind of the whole process going into it. Yeah, and I think that's the process, process with most of our lives too. Like, there's almost never. Pe people would ask me a lot, like, you know, how did you feel the moment? You know, another bullshit night is about my father, me working in a homeless shelter, and my father becoming homeless while I worked there, and us encountering each other in the shelter, and then you know what happens from that and the book was about how I ended up in the shelter how he ended up in the shelter and then you know the what happened at subsequently mm -hmm. um, so people like my editor included you know for the book wanted to know like what did I feel the moment I saw my father but there's no moment there's like no one moment there's, there's like a, it's a chain of a, a chain of uh, uh, moments that sort of lead to something and it's only one thing it's like when he actually walked in through the shelter doors I'd already known that he was homeless mm -hmm. I'd heard heard things I'd, I'd had letters there was all sorts of stuff going on so I, I said in the book in the reenactments I, I, I sort of addressed that by saying because I got to see the moments reenact like they, they have the moment in the film they do have a moment in the film where De Niro appears in the shelter for the first time um, and Dano is like you know checking him in and he sort of looks up in, with shock but in shooting the film, like each like De Niro does 20 takes of his saying, like, can I get a bed for the night? Mm -hmm. Dano has this 20 takes of Dano saying, you know, a bed or something, whatever he answers. Mm -hmm. And to me, like my movie would be just a film of all those takes, mm -hmm. like each one, like because each one is done very differently and done and, you know, sort of seem closer to reality to sort of have each take 
uh, represent that moment. So. Okay. All right. So in your most current work, uh, my feelings, which is um, all all a, po a poetry piece. Um, so it says here in the rumbus that within those poems, you talk about like your relationship with your mother and your childhood. Um, so what prompted you to tackle that part of your life? Well, I mean, I, I mean, I've. I've sort of always tackled that part of my life. Like that's like there's a thread, uh, and not not in every one of my books, uh, but my mother appears in most books, and if she doesn't appear in the book, there's like a a mother figure, uh, and you know, like most of us, we have uh, complicated relationships with our parents. Um, I really haven't met anyone that has a very simple, pure relationship. Even a simple, pure relationship has levels of kind because of, you're then then you're filled with the the, the the dread of like knowing they're gonna die, which is like a whole nother level of complication. Like even if everything's perfect, <laughs> like this is the, the complication of life uh, and suffering. That's, that's the suffering. The suffer <laughs> that's you. That's her. That's how I feel all yeah. the time. I'm always I try to be positive in most situations, but then I get in this space and I'm like. We're all gonna die someday. We're all gonna like up in, not the negative, not the negative part of it, but just the reality of things. Yeah. And like, what do we do at the end of our lives? Mm -hmm. We die. So mm -hmm. I, I don't know. <laughs> I think they call it existentialism, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like this is a whole schools of thinking about it, and it's like one of those things that you you enter into at a certain point in your literary education, and then you probably have to like step outside of it in order to go on, mm -hmm. you know. But I, but we always, you know, but then as you get older, you realize like what the existentialist said, like what Beckett said, like the cold wind of mortality, it just, it's just a reality. It's like whether you, whether you open the window or close it, it's still mm -hmm. there. So, uh, so, uh, yeah, so she, you know, my mother's always been a figure, you know, we had a very, uh, you know, loving and complicated and, uh, difficult and, uh, 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 multi, multi-layered relationship. And. I'm still trying to sort that out. Like it's still like, I think it will be, and I, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it being a project that sort of continues. Like, because we, we all have relationships, so it doesn't feel like it's completely self-centered. It feels like it is an examination through my particular experience of a more universal uh, reality. So is what I hope. Uh, it's a book of poems. The, the book is called, right now it's titled, I Will Destroy You. And uh, the poem is called The King of Fire. The King of Fire. My first night without you, my wings fold back in on themselves. All those birds inside are released by your hands. Now I trace my fingers along my collarbone, trying to find where they live. I keep touching my scar. It feels like swallowing night, like flyers for a lost boy. What if it's true our bodies are not our own, but only become manifest like this poem when activated by another's touch? What if the thing activated is outlined roughly by the word body? This morning, my daughter stood before me naked and said she felt her body was not her own. She's been sick for two days. Smiling, she seemed to like it, the feeling that floating above. I worry it's a setup, a manifestation of the addict I've passed on through the blood, my talent for slipping into the bigger thing, a craving for it.
Oh, to live without thoughts, no rats in our shoulders, only birds, and the willingness to let someone inside. What if these things we call our bodies are not singular or contained? What if they finally become irrelevant? After so much time trying to be grounded, to land on this earth, so strange to imagine we might simply pass by ourselves for a moment, en route to somewhere else. What's on the other side? A nap? A parade? It works. Matchbox sparks, lightning bugs. I'm completely inside that boy who feels like he's inside me. And this, I want to know everything about the parade. Thank you so much for that. Yes, absolutely. Sure, <laughs> sure. Thanks for having me read it. Okay, yeah. so we're going to kind of go into our weird segment. The, li <laughs> the lightning round? Yes. yes. <laughs> so we're going to kind of do the same thing that we did on our last podcast. We're going to do our bar fight. Speed round edition. Speed round. <laughs> <laughs> so just I'm from, I'm from, I'm from uh, Massachusetts, so it's bar fight. Yes, bar fight. <laughs> bar fight. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so our first one okay. is the famous John Green versus David Foster Wallace. Well, who's going to win that fight? Yeah, who'd win that fight? Oh, wow. <laughs> Between John Green and David Foster Wallace. Uh, well, I, oh, that's a tough one. That's a tough <laughs> one. That is tough. You know, because John Green can do things that, like, Foster Wallace can't do, and Foster Wallace does things that John Green can't do. I think that Foster Wallace would probably play a little dirty. <laughs> and, like, s like somehow, like, like while Green was, uh, you know, starting to riff on some sad moment, uh, would sneak behind him and, and, and trip him. <laughs> Next one is Ernest Hemingway versus Edgar Allan Poe. Oh, well, <laughs> well, yeah, I just always think of the drugs. I think Poe was like... <laughs> that's what, I think that's what we, we said, said, too. Right? I think we said either that or... He's going to be like doped up or drunk. <laughs> yeah, like well, Poe was like into laudanum, I think, something like sort of opiates. Like yeah. he was like really sort of wildly into opiates, whereas, you know, uh, Hemingway is into, you know, booze. Uh, and so it, it's tough, you know, a junkie against a drunk. Uh you know, it depends on how soon after Poe took that hit that they got in the fight. You know, like if, you, if you're assuming that, that Hemingway's drunk the whole time, then it's like, you know, when he, if he, he could totally crush Poe you know, as soon as Poe took the hit because he wouldn't care. <laughs> but then if it's like, you know, an hour later, Poe's going to like tear his heart out. So. Yeah, just yeah. see. So it depends on the timing. You know, There's a lot of really. what ifs when it comes to yeah. these. Yeah, yeah. Really yeah. Funny yeah. Like, I, I can see, I can see Ernest Hemingway with a cigarette and like scotch in his hand and just burning him with a cigarette. But then at the same time, if yeah. Edgar Allan Poe is doped up, then yeah. he probably wins. He's gonna be crazy. Yeah, <laughs> be really crazy. Yeah. All right. So J.K. Rowling uh, versus Stephanie Meyer. Um, well, J.K. Rowling versus Stephanie Meyer. Um. These are, these are like, you're going for the, the big bestsellers here. Uh, <laughs> the big fantasy bestsellers. Uh, well, let's see. I think Meyer is, is uh, I'm trying to think if, if Meyer is more grounded in like reality, uh, which I don't know if that's true, uh, which could be a, either an asset or a, or a liability. Mm -hmm. You know, she does sort of like, you know, anything can happen in, in, in J.K. Rowling's world. 
Uh, whereas Myers, it sort of just seemed to fit like, you know, the, the, the werewolves have to do a certain thing, you know, that there's only, they, they follow the rules in a, in a way. And I guess they, they follow rules in, in Rowling's too. So I would say the people that, you know, don't follow the rules will probably win in the fight, mm -hmm. you know, because they'll, they'll play dirty. So <laughs> Rowling would definitely play dirty. So, okay. yeah. Um, next one is Mark Twain versus Maya Angelou. Weird combo if you really think about it. Yeah, it really is. I think that was kind of like a let's that's, see what happens. That's pretty right? random. Yeah, that's very that's very Shows random. Uh, wow, wow. Uh, Mark Twain versus Maya Angelou. That's like that's not they're not even like in the same deck century. No. But see, see what we did. Yeah. I guess I guess Hemingway and Poe weren't either. Um, so Maya Angelou, like, well, she's like. You know, she's very like you know sincere and passionate, and uh, you know, and Twain is is very ironic and 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 funny. Uh, so I think it, it depends on the context of the fight. It depends on what was said first. Like it was something that was really sort of like attacking like a, a deep belief system of Maya Angelou. She'd probably win because she would just get enraged in a way. Like that passion would turn into like violence. Mm -hmm. And Twain, I, I could see not doing that. He would try to sort of talk his way out of it and. So let's assume that it's something that's that means something to them. So Maya would win. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. All right. So this is a, this is not like not a weird one, but just very interesting. Kurt Vonnegut versus E. E. Cummings. Wow, they're all weird. <laughs> uh, You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Cummings is uh, you know is more of a, a a stylistic innovator. Like he really invented a whole school that looks that really is. You know, completely distinct, uh, his poetics. Um, and Vonnegut, you know, Vonnegut is great. Vonnegut is, uh, you know, has, has his style, but it's not, he didn't invent a style. Like, uh, he's plugged into an existing style, I, I, I would say. I mean, others might argue with that. But compare the two, like, Cummings is definitely, like, more stylistically creative. So, he, so, so Cummings, you would assume, would, like, figure out some, like, uh, uh, you know, fighting technique that no one had thought of before. So I think he would probably win. Sweet. Some like weird mix of like jujitsu. Yeah. Yeah. Krav <laughs> Maga. So our last one is F. Scott Fitzgerald versus Stephen King. It's pretty obvious. Well, I mean, it kind of depends which way you look at it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, King has had so much success. You know, like there's nothing that he does that doesn't. He doesn't know failure. You know, like like you know, he writes about failure, but you don't think he really. You know, he had early failure when he was like, but failure when you're 20, everyone fails when they're 20. I mean, so, you know, if you're, if you're like, you know, kicking it by the time you're 25 until you're, you know, for the rest of your life, you could say you don't really remember failure. Mm. Whereas F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, he just sort of, you know, he had the opposite trajectory. He like started out at the top of the, the hill and just slid straight down it. Mm. So that, the desperation that would entail, I think, would again would win the fight. I think desperation wins over comfort. So mm -hmm. I think I think is that how, is that what you think would be the winner? I said Stephen King just personally because he'd be the one that kind. I think I would, said, would come up with a twisted way yeah, to kill. He'd, he'd, he'd do like something come really out twisty, with an axe yeah. or something like that. But he's Stephen King's also from New England, so he's got that he has fire that. burning under him. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. but that's good show. I mean, you know, he's, he's. I think that desperation. I think mm -hmm. that sort of you know. I mean, he would either just give up. And just collapse, or the desperation would like would beat the comfort. Yeah. yeah. All right. That's everything we have. <laughs> That's yeah. good. That's good. Do I? What do I win for that? For getting the? Did I get it? Did I win it? We did played I, for did fun. I win? We, we, we <laughs> bragging rights. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much, Nick Flynn, for coming great. and yeah, yeah. talking with us. We really appreciate it. No, it's great to be here. Thanks. One, two, three, four. Here we go.